If you want to eradicate health disparities, if you want to improve equality in health for everyone, you have to address the social determinants of health. Welcome to another episode of Kessler Foundation's podcast series focused on issues important to the disability community during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Dr. Erica Weber. As we obtain more data about infections, hospitalizations, and fatalities from COVID-19, the world is not only learning more about the virus itself, but importantly, the people that it is affecting. Increasing evidence suggests that certain populations, including those with disabilities, people of color, and individuals in lower socioeconomic classes, may be at greater risk for infection and poor outcomes from the novel coronavirus. To discuss these health disparities in the context of population-based research, I'm joined today by Dr. Denise Fife, a clinical psychologist who specializes in health inequities, and Dr. Amanda Botticello, a social epidemiologist and public health researcher who studies social determinants of health with a focus on disability populations. Both are senior research scientists in Kessler Foundation's Center for Outcomes and Assessment Research, as well as the Center for Spinal Cord Injury Research. Welcome, Dr. Fife and Botticello, and thanks for speaking with us here today. Good morning. Good morning. First, as I mentioned in our introduction, that your research focuses on health disparities, Dr. Fife, and social determinants of health, Dr. Botticello. Could you describe these concepts and the connection to our listening audience? According to, you know, Healthy People 2020 and how the National Institutes of Health uh, define a health disparity, here we're really thinking about you know, uh, disproportionately high levels of illness, chronic illness, such as uh, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease that are observed among specific groups, that is racial and ethnic minority groups, people who are living in poverty, rural areas. That also includes uh, people with disabilities are also observed in the United States. In addition to disproportionately high levels of uh, chronic illness, these also see disproportionate um, number of the mortality rates also for the for these groups are also significantly higher relative to the rest of the population. Yes, and for the social determinants of health, you know, when we think about health disparities, the social determinants of health are really the conditions that create health disparities. So by this, we usually refer to the social and the economic conditions that influence health, such as your neighborhood employment opportunities, education quality, access to health care and health insurance, access to healthy food, green space. So in other words, health happens really in the places where you live, work, and play. And the conditions of those places are also uneven and not equal among the various social groups that we have in the United States. So these two concepts really work hand in hand and can tell us a whole lot about who is healthy, who is having difficulties maintaining their health. And this may be important for figuring out where where we might need to focus more of our resources. Correct. Because if you want to eradicate health disparities, if you want to improve equality in health for everyone, uh, you have to address the social determinants of health. And it seems that this has really been a very topical piece of the news lately where there is more information coming out about where coronavirus is really more prevalent and who it's affecting. So could you tell us a bit about who seems to be more at risk for um, infections and poor outcomes from what we know of COVID-19 so far? 
the data that, that the CDC has collected um, across the country so far, we definitely see patterns that have been longstanding disparities, health disparities that we've observed in the nation being exacerbated by the pandemic across the nation. So what does that mean? So here we're seeing people of color, particularly individuals who self-identify as Black or African-American, Latino or Hispanic. We're seeing groups um, in terms of people living with disability. We're seeing older adults. So vulnerable groups at a higher rate of infection and significantly higher mortality rates, particularly among Blacks and Hispanics who are living, let's say, in densely populated areas such as New York City, Chicago. And then we're also seeing um, in terms of um, African-Americans who are living in Louisiana and Mississippi, we're seeing higher rates of the virus um, and uh, significantly higher rates. And this is in, in spite of the fact that they're accounting for, you know, we see about 30, I'm going to take, for example, in terms of race, race and ethnicity data, about 45% of people living in, for example, in the hospitals that, they've, that the CDC has looked at so far, about 45% of people are white. 33% are Black, 8% are Hispanic. However, in terms of the death rates, we're seeing about 67 to 70% of people who are actually dying from uh, the infection of, of either Black or Hispanic uh, descent. So th those are some of the disparities that we're seeing right now in terms of the um, incident rates and the mortality rates of COVID-19 across racial and ethnic groups across the country. And again, that's steeped primarily uh, you know, when thinking about what Dr. Botticello said about where you live, work, and play, we know that um, racial and ethnic minority groups in highly densely populated areas like New York City, that's, you know, that's sort of like our, our, the epicenter right now that we're talking about in the nation, right? That we're seeing these high rates of incidents and the mortality rates. In New Jersey, what we can talk about definitely are highly densely populated and <laughs> areas such as Newark. We're seeing similar patterns in terms of Newark. Patterson, Bergen County, right? So, and these are areas, again, in terms of having similar racial and ethnic groups living in highly densely populated areas. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Botticello to talk about some of the challenges in living in these disadvantaged areas and the social determinants of health. But those are just some of the patterns we're seeing, I guess, at overall in terms of the incident rates and mortality rates for those areas. Hearing what you're you're saying, you mentioned initially um, that it's the the densely populated areas, and, and you know appropriately mentioning places like uh, New York City and um, and Chicago. But then it also seems like there are there must be other factors if we're also seeing these sorts of patterns in places like Louisiana and Mississippi that are relatively lower densely populated, but the um, the commonality may be that ethnic uh, makeup. So yeah, Dr. Botticello, could you speak to kind of what, what do you think is going on here? What's really at play? Bringing it back to the social determinants of health. So what we know is that certain economic and social conditions and certainly racial and ethnic minorities, um, people who are impoverished and so forth, um, are more exposed to certain social and economic conditions that prevent you from taking the steps that you need to stay safe. So in the case of COVID-19 and the current pandemic, people from vulnerable communities are at further risk because, for instance, they live in the densely populated neighborhoods uh, where not only are people right on top of one another, but they may lack the infrastructure. And this can also isolate people from getting the supplies, the resources that they need to stay home, stay healthy, and stay safe. 
It can also be because the virus uh, is exacerbated by certain underlying chronic conditions. And we know that people from these communities tend to be at higher risk for things like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. And these are all conditions that can worsen the effects of COVID-19, can increase the complications that increase mortality and so forth. We know that people from disadvantaged communities are also more likely to work in jobs where you just cannot work from home, or you don't have access to paid sick leave that would enable you to take time off if you were developing symptoms or if you were exposed to a family member who may be symptomatic um, and suffering from COVID-19. And then finally, we know that many people in these communities are underinsured or lack proper health insurance. And as you can imagine, that really affects your ability to obtain timely care as well as adequate health care. And I also want to piggyback on what you're saying in terms of, um, I guess, too, in terms of timely testing and access to health care, right? Just even in, even if you are exposed, in terms of what we're seeing in terms of rates of um, minority groups, potentially people who are living with disability, underserved groups, being tested in a timely, uh, timely manner so that they can get the help that they need. So if you're coming in, you know, with a chronic illness, you should have put it at a disadvantage from the very beginning. It's been exacerbated by COVID-19, but not necessarily, um, you know, I'm seeing like in terms of some of the articles that are being um, uh, written and things like that, that just like understanding the symptoms, because they can show up even if you're dealing with certain chronic illnesses somewhat differently. And so, you know, how soon do you go to the doctor to get tested, get the results and get the care that you need? There's a tremendous history of bias and discrimination in healthcare towards people of color, towards other disadvantaged group, the poor and so forth. So this all kind of comes together in the confluence of circumstances that has very tragic results that we're seeing playing out right now. One thing I wanted to add to, you know, when we're talking about why um, we think um, health disparities are being exacerbated during this uh, pandemic is, you know, we think, you know, about what Dr. Botticello was saying about the social determinants of health. I mean, the disparities are historically linked to, you know, a history of discrimination, as Dr. Botticello had mentioned, in terms of healthcare, but also issues related to segregation in terms of access to food, to green space, excess exposure to environmental hazards among minority groups, and um, under under um, served populations can also lead to, you know, chronic illness and increasing your risk of, you know, and living in these, again, these densely populated areas where, you know, we're being told to stay six feet away but if you're living in a cramped space or in a smaller space, how are you able to navigate the pandemic and preventative measures, getting access to gloves, to masks, people who are living with a disability and need care in their homes? Well, we know that a large percentage of essential workers are Black and Latino. And uh, they serve, uh, you know, dis- disabled in- individuals in their home, whether it's a primary care assistant, a nurse, or what have you. And so, you know, navigating that interchange in the home for minority groups, again, who are living in areas that have, that are highly densely populated or disadvantaged neighborhoods, that can be complicated to try to make sure that you're meeting the needs of your clients during COVID-19. 
whether it's getting their medicines, taking care of their wounds. It's a serious challenge. I'm not saying that I have the answers, but it's it's a serious challenge to try to work through and around certain circumstances right now. And we talked a little bit more before about, you know, telemedicine, even having access to that. Well, that seems to be, you know, even though everyone has a cell phone, we know that the technical divide is another indicator of health disparities in the country in that disadvantaged and minority groups may not have access to the resources that they need for telemedicine. And they actually need someone to come into their home in order to deliver care, or they need to go to a hospital or emergency room just for primary care services. And especially with our communities with disabilities, there's a lot of care services that are required that don't allow for social distancing, where it is a very intimate, work of an intimate nature, where the person is really requiring much more physical services. And it may be somewhat inevitable that that the risk risk from two separate communities based on that of the worker and that of the client are are then intermingled. So even despite best efforts, there's perhaps um, a necessary intersection between different groups that may be happening, especially as you mentioned, Dr. Fight, that there are a large percentage of our healthcare workers, um, particularly home health aides who are uh, people of color and um, maybe coming from neighborhoods where they've been disadvantaged by all of those, those um, reasons that you had mentioned. This is nothing that's new. Frankly, it's nothing that's surprising. It's, it's depressing that we haven't done enough to eradicate health disparities in this country, but we know from history that communities of color and people who are economically disadvantaged are going to suffer more from the public health crisis of the day. So we're seeing this play out in COVID-19. And we should have learned by now based on historical records. So the epidemic that comes to mind that most of us have lived through is the HIV AIDS epidemic. And we know that this that that disease disproportionately affected African-Americans and other minority community and marginalized groups. And we see this all playing out again with COVID-19. Hopefully we will do enough to study and document so that we can use this opportunity to really look into resolving health disparities based on the light that's been shed on our healthcare system by COVID-19. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Fife and I really hope emerges from this is that we use this as an opportunity to look at how pandemics and other public health crises can disproportionately put people with disabilities at risk. Because people with disabilities are another health disparity population that frankly does not receive a lot of attention and can remain hidden um, from most of our, our public health crises of the day. That's a great point and, and a sobering one at that. But being able to, to use this as a very unfortunate example of how individuals' disabilities have been affected um, may really do a lot to, um, to help boost their resources moving forward so that individuals' disabilities have a much uh, more likely chance of stronger health outcomes. So what do you think is the appropriate way to, to get this research done? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, to be able to address health disparities, first we need to identify what they are. 
So there is a lot of effort going into data collection and making sure we have good data collection for health disparity groups, um, particularly racial and ethnic minorities. And I think what we would like to see among um, what we're studying with COVID-19 in terms of who is at risk for exposure, who is able to get tested, and frankly, who are developing severe complications and dying of COVID-19. We would like to know how much of this is related to chronic underlying conditions and in particularly related to disabling conditions. Well, I think we need a combination, to be honest with you, of both population-based studies that are, you know, in terms of uh, national surveys that captures, uh, you know, uh, some some of the data that Dr. Vadasalo had mentioned. But we, you know, we know that you know people who are living with disabilities um, have, you know, more than half of them have at least one chronic illness, right? That make that could put them at risk of COVID nineteen, and make it more severe or deadly for them to live with that, um, to live with the infection. And so I think survey data is great. I think that that's definitely one component we definitely need to understand. And Dr. Botticello, as an epidemiologist, can speak to that, <laughs> I think, but better than I can. And so, but also, I think it's important, I think, uh, for me, as a mixed method researcher, I, I definitely would like to learn about the stories of participants, people who are living with disabilities. Dr. Weber, I know in your department uh, or research lab, you're working with people with TBI, MS. I'm primarily working with veterans and as well as um, people who are living with uh, spinal cord injury, primarily SCI. Dr. Bradisell is also working with uh, children who are living with disabilities as well. And I think these are all different stories. We could learn definitely from a mixed methods of like using when, what do I mean by mixed methods? Sorry, someone might be asking that question. You know, um, when, uh, when we actually talk to people and having um, in-depth interviews about their experiences, how did COVID-19, um, you know, impact you in terms of your um, access to food, nutrition, your access to medication, your access to health care? You know, um, what were some things that you experienced, the good, the bad and the ugly? And what kind of outcomes did that lead to, even in terms of your home? Because now, you know, I'm thinking about someone who's living with a spinal cord injury who may or may not have uh, a caregiver in the house. And so um, let's say that you do, you know, how has that impacted your relationship? Because we know for some people who are living with a caregiver, they, you know, before COVID-19, they were able to get out of the house and, you know, get involved in their community, whether it, whether it's going for a drive or what have you, but it was peace of mind knowing that you could get out of the house to do that and not put yourself at risk of potential infection, right? But now, you know, there's an extra level of sensitivity and care that has to go into protecting an individual who's living with a spinal cord injury. And so, you know, being mindful of that and really being very deliberate about the choices that they're making, you know, who's delivering their medication, those kinds of conversations can be explored using, you know, semi-structured interviews, in-depth interviews, whereas I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Botticello, but she can speak more to what uh, the population-based or survey data could really share with us or, or enlighten us about and help us understand a little bit more. There's a definite national push to collect better data and more thorough data on health disparities groups. And what I would add to that for state and local health departments is to really understand as well 
among the people that were being identified for COVID-19 if we could understand their disability status. And in particular, um, you know, how much people are being affected who have cognitive and mobility impairments, um, other types of sensory impairments, underlying health conditions, all of that is going to be very helpful data for us to understand how people with disabilities are being affected by the pandemic. Because we know, again, circling back to history, if we look at other crises that we've faced in our lifetime, created by natural disasters. So I'll give the example of Hurricane Katrina. People with disabilities were very much at risk um, when it came to evacuating safely. And what we've seen play out with COVID-19, of course, are folks who are living in long-term care facilities, nursing homes, assisted living, have also been devastated by this virus. So we need to understand more about the people who have long-term chronic impairments and what makes them at risk, as well as what we can do to prevent that. Because I fear we're living in an age of pandemic and we need to address these things quickly and competently as more information about the virus unfolds. And it sounds like being able to to marry these two perspectives. So one, you're, you're getting the, the larger data set, um, lots of variables from as many people as possible. And then on the other hand, to speak to Dr. Fife's work, that you're really getting an individual's perspective and their take. Um, both of these in combination really would be most useful because then you're, you're getting a lot of information ultimately on what is important to the disability community based on what has been identified. So almost like a working working on both of these methods in tandem. Yeah, I think that that would be helpful. But I, wa I want to just clarify one thing, Dr. Weber, is it's that, you know, I think what a part of what I was saying was, you know, if, if, if we're having conversations or learning about stories about groups, uh, smaller groups, targeted targeted conversations, people for people who are living with spinal cord injury, veterans, uh, children and their parents who are living with disabilities, people living with MS, TBI, there's an opportunity there to really tar target interventions too, right? Based on the type of the the, the type of uh, disability that um, these groups are living with. That's a great point. You can really find out who who is going to need what services and be able to to match what intervention might be most effective in getting people the care and the services and the improved health outcomes that they would really need. Agreed. One thing I wanted to say though too about different interventions, those targeted interventions for people living, let's say, for example, with spinal cord injury, what we found is for people who are living with disabilities, a lot of their local organizations and national organizations are really spearheading interventions and efforts to help people, let's say, who are living with spinal cord injury, getting them whatever they need in their homes. For example, the Craig Nielsen Foundation, you know, focuses on individuals who are living um, with spinal cord injury, and they have targeted efforts in terms of um, small grants to assist people who are living with spinal cord injury during these times in terms of their everyday needs, whether that's accessing the iPads that they need for telemedicine, those kinds of things, um, you know, from a, a targeted group. And um, other groups, like who are working with people who are living with, um, you know, either cognitive or um, intellectual disabilities as well. So we're seeing some real grassroots efforts. That's a great example for the SCI community. 
I can think of individuals with multiple sclerosis, the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, NMSS, has a great website and they have the um, MS Navigator where it's a, a chat function and you can reach out. They're great with information. So that may be another way to get connected with services. I know the um, Brain Injury Alliance of New Jersey has been doing virtual support groups and they have their website set up so that if uh, individuals have concerns or questions that they can reach out. So that's a really great point of um, for individuals with disabilities being able to reach out to the community organizations that may be able to provide some sort of assistance. And a lot of these, um, these organizations already do great work, but they, they're realizing that this is a, an increased time of need for their consumers and are, are really stepping up. Absolutely. Yep. I'd also just want to mention the Paralyzed Veterans of America, the PVA, uh, you know, Wounded Warriors, targeting their efforts to veterans living with a spinal cord injury as well in terms of resources meals, whatever, I mean, from the basic needs um, all the way uh, to, you know, like um, clinical care needs. And as we've discussed each of these pieces, it may seem like um, a relatively small effort, but it may be that um, providing meals may mean that the person doesn't have to risk their health to go into the grocery store. And that may be, may have been the time that they might've been exposed to the virus. So as some, something as simple as meal delivery may actually be the critical component in making sure the person stays healthy during this pandemic. I want to point out that engaging with people in various communities, engaging with different segments of the disability population is really how we're going to identify long-term solutions. So if, for instance, we identify that people are having difficulties getting needed medical care, needed medical supplies, um, obtaining healthy food and meal services, this can hopefully shed some light on where we need to go as a nation in terms of addressing the needs of the disabled population overall, which is a very you know, diverse population, I will say. However, if we look at where some of the key issues are right now among the people who are most vulnerable to the effects of this pandemic, and I'm not just speaking of the immediate health effects, but also these ancillary effects that we're all experiencing in terms of obtaining the necessary uh, resources that we need to get through the lockdown in various parts of the country. So we really need to speak with members of these communities to find out what has worked and what hasn't, and hopefully develop a more extensive program that can target more people and get out ahead of future public health crises. I think being forward-looking, you know, this is this has taught people a lot of lessons of being prepared is, is critical, and you never really know what you have to be prepared for in terms of um, what exactly the the public health crisis might look like, you know, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina, and that's, um, you know, we'll have some commonalities to what we're experiencing now, but also is, is radically different in terms of, um, I think the, the closest, the, uh, the biggest difference is, you know, social, social isolation and um, being grouped versus not, but being able to at least start to think through these, um, these potential disasters as an exercise, and thinking about how it might impact different communities and having the communities weigh in on how how they 
have been impacted by these things in the past and then how they um, anticipate that that might happen in the future. That will probably be the best predictor of any positive change we can make going forward. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, if we can look for a silver lining, what these crises do is really expose a lot of the cracks in our emergency response and in our social safety nets. And hopefully we can use this information to improve upon them. For the ongoing COVID-19 response, what do you think needs to be put in place so that vulnerable populations are most protected now and in the future? I think one of the things that most public health professionals um, are are trying to hit home really with a lot of the messages that are that are being filtered through the news media and so forth is that there really is a need for widespread testing and this o- doesn't only apply to people who are sick and symptomatic and going to the hospital but really needs to be done on a broader scale so that we can identify upcoming areas of uh, clusters of outbreaks and so forth, and also deploy healthcare resources in advance. So in other words, a more proactive response to really look throughout the nation and see where we can identify new hotspots of disease and also take preemptive measures to to protect and isolate people who are vulnerable uh, from exposure to COVID is definitely needed. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll put the plug for public health and epidemiology. We, we need to continue to collect data on this. I mean, this is far from over. Um, there are going to be new issues that emerge uh, throughout the country, and we need to continue to get more information about who is at risk, uh, how that risk is uneven, and what are the conditions that we can identify to hopefully mitigate some of this risk and improve the health of the population overall. In, in terms of the social conditions that we were speaking of earlier, the social conditions or social determinants of health and the places where, where health occurs, um, I think what COVID has really identified for us is that we need a national policy for paid sick leave. Um, there's definitely a need for expanded access to health care. We've, we've identified the dangers of people um, being under and, and uninsured and what that can mean in terms of, of seeking care and delaying care and treatment. Um, we need to address, frankly, bias and discrimination in healthcare related to, to groups that historically have been marginalized in America. I mean, this is an ongoing issue, and I think hopefully as treatments and vaccines are developed, we we need to continue to address this and make sure that people have equal access to those treatments when when they come. And finally... We need to develop plans for future public health crises, and, and I'll add to that natural disasters, which do seem to to disproportionately affect people who are on, on the margins of society um, and get the input of people who may be vulnerable to occurrences like this to figure out what, what is needed and what we can do to prevent and also what we can do to mitigate the very worst from happening. All told, that would definitely be comprehensive and um, and much needed. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those those um, aspects that you just mentioned are are only put in place kind of spottily throughout the country at this point. We're seeing some of the the ill effects from that now, but I appreciate your your weighing in on 
the the aspect of making sure that we're more thoroughly testing and and that seems to be um, what has been effective in a number of countries that have have shown um, more positive outcomes at this point and to the degree that it helps us learn about how the disease is is tracking and, and where it's going but also that uh, being proactive being able to identify where those next hot spots will be there is a lot we can do um, we we know what can be done it's frankly going to be um, you know once this all clear you know once once this ends and there will be an after to this pandemic i think it'll be really key for us to learn from from what we've observed but also take action that interplay between policy and and health is is definitely important um we we see that daily with press briefings at the at the federal and state level and making sure that those uh, lessons that we've been learning are are put into put into place more broadly. Yes, and it's really for everyone's benefit. I mean, I think the constant refrain that we've heard from this is that viruses don't discriminate, right? In terms of in terms of borders, in in terms of neighborhoods and things like that. So it's really to everyone's benefit that we address the social conditions, the economic conditions that are causing um, a lot of the the illness and the death from COVID-19. And it will, you know, in the end, benefit everyone as a whole. Thank you very much for an illuminating conversation, Dr. Fife and Dr. Botticello. As you both mentioned, this is not a new phenomenon, but if we can use this conversation to shed light on how this is impacting individuals with disabilities during the pandemic, then we've been able to do our job of improving outcomes for the future. Thank you again, and thank you for the important research that you're doing in this area. Thank you, Dr. Weber. It's been great having this conversation with you today. Thank you, Dr. Weber and Dr. Bardicello. I really did enjoy our conversation. Stay safe and healthy. Tuned into our podcast lately? Join our listeners in 90 countries who enjoy learning about the work of Kessler Foundation. In new episodes, our experts weigh in on the impact of COVID-19 on people living with disabilities. And they talk about how research that changes lives continues at Kessler Foundation. Check back soon to listen to more COVID-19 podcasts on our playlist. The link is in the program notes. Listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, April 30th, 2020, remotely, and was edited and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation.